Rachel watches Star Trek and reads comments. What's going on, everybody? It's me, Chris Lackey, and we are here with the comments show. And by we, I mean myself and... And I'm Rachel Lackey. <laughs> are you feeling okay, Rachel? You sound a little You sound a little off. I'm evil Rachel Lackey from the Mirror oh. Universe. Oh, no. Do you like my goatee? Yeah, it looks good on you. I gotta say, you make it work. I love Star Trek and I hate musicals. Ugh. <laughs> Guess what my favorite Star Trek episode is? Well, hmm. Oh, you're evil, Rachel Ackie, so I would say alternative factor. Well, that's, that's a good one, but I do <laughs> like the deadly years. <laughs> oh, when Chekhov sees that dead old guy and he screams, oh, so manly. You know what? I don't think I can put up with you, evil Rachel Ackie. You're out of here. Eject. Just, just kidding. It's me, Rafe what? Ball. Oh, thank God. I almost blew you out the airlock. <laughs> Rafe Ball is joining us here on our comment show. We're giving Rachel some time to work uh, as a psychotherapist because she's helping out people, and that's great. But Rafe and I love these comments, and we want to participate and feedback to you guys about what's going on. So here we are talking about comments, and we're going to go Deep Space Nine from the very beginning. So these are episodes 268 and 269, The Emissary. Lots of love and excitement for DS9 in the comments. Greg Mendel says, yay, you've arrived at Deep Space Nine. It took me a while to warm up to this series, perhaps because of its darker themes, how little we knew about the 21st century back then. However, the themes around the trials and tribulations of family life, or should I say trials and tribulations, hint, hint, <laughs> see what you did there, Greg, may grow on you. And if you stick around, there will be jazz. I'm mostly here, Rachel and Chris, for your wonderful banter, your interesting added tidbits of info, and of course, your songs. Oh, boy. Yeah, we got to get some more songs in. We haven't done much. I think Rachel's got one that she's been working on, but we'll see. Oh, excellent. I'll look forward to that. Greg also says this is a chance for him to nerd out. While employed as a scientist at LIGO Hanford Observatory, I worked on gravitational waves from black hole mergers with a thousand plus colleagues and created wow. precise mathematical maps of the curved space in and around a Schwarzschild black hole showing the Einstein-Rosen bridge and the Schwarzschild wormhole. Wow. wow, that is awesome stuff. I didn't know that you were doing that stuff. My youngest, uh, Finian, he loves space. He has lots of space and astrophysics books and reads about planets and all that stuff. So uh, very exciting stuff. Absolutely. And if anyone wants to check that out, if you go back to the comments on the emissary, Greg's put links into all that cool stuff. So if you want a crash course in space-time theory, check it out. Kern Huey writes, welcome to, in my humble opinion, both the best Trek theme and the best Trek captain in the franchise. I actually prefer the up-tempo version used in the later seasons, but the original theme is great too. We talk about Pike being space dad, but Cisco is the real deal. Cisco broke the rule of bad Trek dads. Yeah, he did. I love, I love the father-son relationship between Jake and, mm. and Cisco. It's just, ah, oh, it's the best. It helped that Avery Brooks treated Sirik Lofton like his own son and had him hang out with his family. Brooks thought it was important to show a strong black father on TV. It was also cool watching Jake grow up over the course of the series. Absolutely. Yeah. The Emissary is a far, far better opener than Encounter at Farpoint. 
Absolutely. Mm. Or Caretaker. Yes. Mm. From Voyager. I appreciated finally getting footage of the Battle of Wolf 359 that they couldn't afford to film during TNG. I think that this quite clearly shows why it's dumb having families on a starship. In addition to the deaths, imagine how many people were assimilated by the Borg. Ugh, gosh, you're right. Yeah, I'm with you there on all points, Kern, except the change to the theme tune, or the damn diddly diddlies, as I call them. Uh, <laughs> that, that gets on my nerves in the later seasons. Oh, man. It's like, why mess with perfection? That theme tune is excellent. It's, it's golden. I like them both. I can't, don't make me choose. Not everyone is as keen on Deep Space Nine as Greg and Kern, though. Elisheba writes, I will once again try to watch along with you. I admit both TOS and TNG, I kept falling off the wagon because the episodes would be bad and I wouldn't want to watch more. You know, I'm on record as DS9 being my favorite show, so hoping that watching along with it is helping you jump on the bandwagon, Elisheba. I hope you're still hanging in there with us. Let us know. Yes, please let us know. And I think that these episodes are, after watching the whole series of Trek, watching original series and TNG, all this stuff, Deep Space Nine is starting off way stronger than any other series. And I, I think it keeps going, but we'll have to wait and see. Luke Slater writes, Chris, you skipped the intro on the first episode. I mean, my daughter would do that, but she's 10 and skips the DuckTales intro, so I know how badly <laughs> I failed there. <laughs> DuckTales, woo-woo! And also, she's grown up never having to sit through an intro at all, of course. Yeah, skip intro, something we never had in our use, wish we had. Yep, me too. The intro to a Star Trek series is so important, and I feel it's a disservice not to even watch the pilot as intended. Oh, I'm sorry. I was shocked, shocked, I tell you, at this. <laughs> the <laughs> DS9 theme's amazing, even yes. when they messed with it in later seasons with those damn diddly diddlies. <laughs> there is no excuse for skipping Trek theme music. All right. Well, maybe. No. What about... Don't say it. It's too late. It's got me. Been a long road. Getting from there to here. It's been a long time. But my time is finally near. And I will see my dream come alive at last. I will touch the sky. And, and they're, they're not, not gonna, gonna hold me down, down no more. more. No, no, they're, they're not, not gonna, gonna change my mind. Cause, Cause I, I got, got faith of the heart. Going where my heart will take me. I've got faith to believe. Well, I can do anything. I've got strength. I'm so old. No one's gonna be. Break me, I can reach any star. I've got faith. I've got faith. Faith of the Graham Eberhardt writes, when Rachel talked about how impressed she was at all the big ideas being sent up in the pilot and wondered aloud how the writers came up with all of that, I, along with other Babylon 5 fans, presumably, was shouting, they stole it at the podcast. The creator of Babylon 5 shops his show around, including to Paramount, in the early 1990s. 
Paramount had access to the notes on what the five-season-long novel for television would entail. This includes a space station in neutral territory parked outside a wormhole, a race having recently won independence from an oppressive occupying force and the political fallout of that, a focus on the station's marketplace, casino, etc., as opposed to exclusively focused on the bridge crew, a roguish, shrewd gambler alien with an adversarial relationship with a security chief, a commander with a traumatic past and a mysterious destiny as foretold by an alien prophecy, a feisty female second-in-command, a shapeshifter character, a mysterious race of higher beings with an understanding beyond our perceptions of space and time, and many other things I won't mention because they'll spoil future episodes. Paramount had all of this, took copious notes, decided not to produce Babylon 5, and then immediately made their own, nearly identical show. Star Trek Deep Space Nine aired only one month before the pilot of Babylon 5 did, Paramount didn't have the full five-year Babylon 5 story, so obviously Deep Space Nine becomes its own thing as it progresses, but it very much started as a Babylon 5 clone. Mm, what do you think of that, Rafe? Ooh, now we're into contentious territory. Graham's brought up something that's been debated for you know, close on 30 years now. Mm -hmm. So, yep, he's quite right. Babylon 5 creator J. Michael Straczynski did shot Babylon 5 to Paramount in 1989. So their executives definitely knew about it. Both shows began production on their pilots in 1992, and there are definitely some similarities, mm -hmm. as Graham points out. Yeah. But the big debate has always been how much of it was parallel evolution and how much of it might have been plagiarism. Mm -hmm. So I, while the executives knew about it, and obviously they can influence the direction of a show's development, so maybe they might have suggested a darker frontier station setting it's pretty unlikely they'd have the level of creative control to be you know, specifying characters and plot lines and, and so on. And right. no one's ever leveled accusations of, of plagiarism or suggested that they had access to the Bible for the actual writers and creators of the show. Mm -hmm. So there's a really good article on plagiarism today, which we can link to in the notes, right. uh, that digs into this in detail. And it concludes that you know, we'll probably never know for sure but Babylon 5 probably influenced DS9's direction to an extent, but probably falls quite a way short of plagiarism. I mean, I love Babylon 5 as well as DS9. Yeah. As a fan of both, I think they're probably right. At the end of the day, we got two really great sci-fi yeah. shows that happened to be set on space stations out of it. Absolutely. And symbolically, they buried the hatchet because you had Major Roddenberry guest star in Babylon 5 and Babylon 5 star Bill Moomy guest starred in DS9 so right, yeah. hopefully just like the cast we can all get along and just love both shows yeah and that brings us to episode 270 past prologue Richard Wolf writes Tinker Taylor Cardassian spy I love Garrick my dear captain everybody loves Garrick <laughs> even Forrest Rush especially Forrest Rush <laughs> Forrest Rush writes, So is there anything you do like about Deep Space Nine, Forrest? Garrick. Garrick and Garrick. Well, there's more. But the character is a delight, and when he's around the whole, ultimately, for me, not working Trek Noir is redeemed somewhat. His whiplash performances from silliness to threatening make for some of the best scenes, for which we'll have to wait till season two now. Everyone agrees Garrick is wonderful, I think. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't like Garrick. Great character. Yeah. But I was really surprised re-watching season one how little some significant characters were in it. I mean, Garak's only one ep. Same with Vedek Wynn. Even Ducat is only in two episodes in season one. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I guess it shows how much the writers looked at what worked well in the first season and built on that, which is which is good. But you know, these yeah. characters stick in your mind so much. I think it's such a big part of the show, and yet you watch season one and go, "Oh, forgot that that they're hardly in it." <laughs> yeah. Peter Larson writes, "I feel Bajorans have advanced hair gel technology." <laughs> Despite their problems. <laughs> Another thing Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 have in common, but I think the hair gel award goes to the Centauri. Yes, absolutely, for sure. <laughs> Episode 272, A Man Alone. Lewis Carter writes, I am so glad you brought up Keiko having no teacher training. It saves me having to write out a long rant. <laughs> Even the first few seconds that we hear of her lesson makes me think, what? That's, that's just not what you do on your first day. <laughs> It comes across as the writer saying, what do we do with this woman that we've accidentally written into this show because we wanted Miles? <laughs> Let's see. What do women do? We've already got get angry and reject advances. What else? <laughs> I know, childcare. Oh, man. Yeah. It's rough. Mind you, I can imagine Chief O'Brien kicking off if Cisco protested and said she couldn't do it. What do you mean Keiko can't open a school? Picard let Crusher's kid fly the feckin' ship, but my wife can't teach a bunch of kids. At least she has a degree. The boy hadn't even graduated high school. <laughs> Good points. Good points there. Luke Slater writes, American media is so full of stories which involve people just turning up and teaching. Usually it's a badass Marine in an inner city school or a tough detective at a suburban kindergarten rather than a lone botanist in a largely self-sufficient community. So I guess at least Keiko has an academic background. For real, though, having taught at a primary school for five years and basically broken myself doing it, the idea that all she needs is a bell and a can-do attitude is infuriating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Professor Koshka writes, Someone who is very, very close to me is trans. Yes, it takes getting used to. Yes, people lose friends when they transition, and not always for bad transphobic reasons. Sometimes people just drift apart as a result. In real life, though, a gender transition is a lot more gradual than a trill getting a new host and suddenly changing. Yeah. Related, a lot of trans people really identified with Dax. For many of them, they were watching DS9 before they really realized they were trans. Yeah, I could see that. And obviously it's science fiction and the, the change of uh, a trill change is really extreme. You know, not just physically, but... But psychologically, it's a whole different person that you're actually becoming with different memories and all, all of these things. But from a science fiction standpoint, it is a good, I think, analogy. Is that the right mm. word you would say? Analogy for it? Uh, for going through that process? And I know, yeah, there's that, the great, um, is it, I'll say it's a meme. When Jetsia meets the Klingons from the original series and they know mm. her as Curzon. And she corrects them and says, no, I'm Dax now. And they're like, oh, Dax. And then that's, you know. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, it's a straight lift from the show. That's what's in there. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens in the show. I think Rachel's mentioned that, you know, Dax is a little bit underserved, perhaps, in the first oh, season. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. We get a lot more development for her as we go on. And we also get more episodes that deal with her interacting, you mentioned, with the, her Klingon friends, people friends, family that she knew from previous hosts. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting to look at those through this kind of lens now mm -hmm. uh, to see hey, how, how does that read nowadays? Because obviously we're, you know, we're 30 years from wow. when some of these originally aired and Jeez. it's a very, very different, hopefully, attitudes and yeah. and so on. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it reads nowadays. 
That brings us to episode 274, Babel. Brian Leet writes, this episode was a good concept poorly paced. I think it was really let down by the lack of time and character dimensionality of the original Bajoran perpetrators. A bit less time on stuck airlocks, aphasic moments, and a bit more time on being struck by the existential threat of being killed by a weapon you helped create. I laughed out loud at your plot summary. I must admire the commitment to the joke. Thanks. Now I have to go wash out my ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting stuff in the episode, but this does feel like uh, an episode that could have taken place on TNG. That still has that old, yeah. I want to say old school, so they were showing at the same time, but it, it maybe is less, less DS9 than some of the others. Yeah, less evolved as an episode of, of science fiction television, in my opinion. All right, Ben A writes, that was a shoe horn pop tart soda can what, Chris television. Oh, no. Chris has had a relapse of the aphasia virus. Sit down for a minute. I'm sure we'll be okay, but help. Can anyone help us? It's me, Jack Nicholson. I'm back. Oh, Jack, thank you. Oh, you are a lifesaver. Ben A writes, what a very entertaining way to cover an episode. You two, well, four. Thanks, Rafe and Richard, are fabulous. Oh, how generous. Thank you. Jack, get out of here. Oh, what? I'm on my way out now. Ah, you're, oh, fantastic. You're better. We've got a vaccine. Like, I'm, I'm fine. I just, just get a little injection. You know, a friend of mine who's a doctor, he gets really annoyed on Star Trek how they often give people injections of things without their consent. And that's not something that doctors did in the Victorian times, <laughs> let alone like modern day. They just run up and give people an injection. It's like, no, you don't. That has been practice. You go, I'm going to give you this injection. This is what it does. Is that OK? And, you know, so he gets annoyed by that. Just I thought that was an interesting comment. Ben A continues, as for the episode, for an early entry into a Star Trek series, and only the third-ish entry at this point, TSA was really TOS Season 4, this one was much better than the others that covered viruses run amok. I'm looking at you naked now in the deadly years. Ooh, deadly years! I agree with your assessment that conceptually this episode doesn't tread on new ideas, but I counter and agree with the AV Club that by placing it in the world of Deep Space Nine, some novel implications come up. Quark's responses are quite outside of the kinds that we would expect from rank-and-file Starfleet, and as a result, add dimensionality to an otherwise run-of-the-mill infection plot. And, as SM notes above, there are some implied deeper elements about terrorism and occupation. I'll also add that I find Avery Brooks's acting to be one of the best parts of early Deep Space Nine. Agreed. In addition to the interplay between Quark and Odo, and, well, everyone. Cisco is a very different Star Trek leader and brings a playfulness and seriousness to his acting that is refreshing to the world of Star Trek. Agreed. Yeah, totally agree, Ben. Like another famous commander I could name, Cisco really gets going once he gets the beard. But as soon as I started re-watching Emissary, it reminded me how much I love Avery Brooks' performance, even from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that gets us to 276, Captive Pursuit. Lewis Carter. I won't have a chance to listen to this for a few days, but I've been watching the episodes in advance, so my opinions are all up to date. Here is my thoughts about this one, which maybe you've already covered. So, in this episode, Odo is hiding on the wall as a painting. <laughs> now, I'll, now, I'll hand wave away the question of why he was hanging around on the wall of a random corridor. 
Obviously, Odo regularly does an ooze patrol of the station, <laughs> saw Tosk breaking into the wall panel, slid down the wall to observe the crime, and turned into the painting while doing the observation in case Tosk turned around. <laughs> what interests me more is that this painting is a fully realised object. The frame is decorated, complements the background wall and the painting within, while at the same time having enough contrast against both to allow the painting to pop. The painting itself is a fully realised scene that you can believe was painted by someone. All this suggests Odo chose this painting as one to turn into. Mm. If he created the image himself, that's a level of artistry he has not shown so far. Even if he is just emulating what humanoids would expect a painting to look like, he has made artistic choices here that provoke further investigation into his process. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe it's a copy of someone else's painting, but that's also interesting. Where did he see it? Has he seen other paintings? We know he's lived in a Bajoran research facility in this Cardassian station. So is this Bajoran art, Cardassian art, or something he's seen in the roughly five weeks the Federation have been here? Mm. If he's seen others, why pick this one over those? <laughs> why go for this style, when a more abstract pattern might be easier? Did he study it for a long time with the intent of replicating it? Has he practiced turning into it before? With the benefit of hindsight, I see this throwaway scene is the true start of the Odo art. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that you took... One choice that was made by probably an art director in this show and extrapolated essence of Odo's character, brilliant. I mean, for me, the question is, Odo can replicate fine art, but he can't do noses? <laughs> I know. <laughs> or can he do noses in pictures? Yeah, good point. <laughs> or is everyone looking at all these pictures going, why, why is everyone's nose really weird in this painting? What was the artist trying to say? <laughs> Professor Koshka writes, Crocodiles cannot, however, turn invisible. Can you be sure? You ever seen an invisible crocodile? I know you haven't. True. Gotta watch out for those tachyon emissions from the cloaked Romulan crocodiles. <laughs> the Lonely Sand Person writes, The code of silence makes no sense. These guys are transporting onto a busy street to have a firefight as if it's no big deal then start issuing commands to the station commander, which indicates that they are something akin to nobility and expect deference from everyone they encounter, as if they expect to be recognised as hunters and not interfered with. If so, then surely they would expect Tosk to be equally recognisable. So what's the point of silence? Yeah, good point. The Prime Directive prevents interference with pre-warp cultures. Tosk and the hunters both approached a Federation station in warp-capable vessels. The Prime Directive has nothing to do with this situation. Mm. Now, Richard Wolf jumps in. I rewatched this episode in advance of the show, and I realized I probably had not seen it since it first aired. I may have been nine at the time. I remembered being so angry that Tosk existed only to be hunted like that, and was pleased that the episode stood up, in my opinion, after not having seen it for years. I'm no Federation legal scholar, but the UFP tends to not interfere by rule in cultural activities of even warp-enabled civilizations. There are numerous examples of this that we see in TNG, where someone on the Enterprise steps outside of the line and gets a slap on the wrist, usually from Picard. In that way, though, I think we see a narrative continuation from TNG here in, into Deep Space Nine, showcasing how our heroes do the right thing, even if it means risking their careers. Interesting. Well, Rafe Bull comes along at this point in the comments, <laughs> and, uh, and he has this to say. The Prime Directive isn't as straightforward as it once was. By the 24th century, it had 47 suborders. Star oh. Trek Prodigy's episode, First Contact, gives us the best look we've had so far at the main text of General Order 1. Section 1. 
Starfleet crew will obey the following with any civilization that has not achieved a commensurate level of technological and or societal development as described in Appendix 1. A. No identification of self or mission. B. No interference with the social, cultural or technological development of said planet. C. No reference to space, other worlds or advanced civilizations. D. The exception to this is if said society has already been exposed to the concepts listed herein. However, in that instance, Section 2 applies. Section 2. If said species has achieved the commensurate level of technological and or societal development as described in Appendix 1, or has been exposed to the concepts listed in Section 1, no Starfleet crew will engage with said society or species without first gathering extensive information on the specific traditions, laws and culture of that species' civilization. Then, Starfleet crew will obey the following. A. If engaged with diplomatic relations with said culture, that it will stay within the confines of said culture's restrictions. B. No interference with the societal development of said planet. Wow. Man, that guy talks a lot of sense. Good on you, Rafe Ball. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that from? That's uh, from Prodigy. Yeah, yeah. Prodigy oh, wow. gave us the best breakdown of, uh, of the Prime Directive we've had yet. So another point for Prodigy. That's great. When is it it's supposed to air the second season? Because I know Netflix has it now. They do. They've got season one. So that's available yeah. for rewatch now. So everyone go rewatch that. Season two is coming at some point this year. I don't think there's been a date. They haven't officially announced, no. Last I heard, it had all been done. I think it was there was still some editing being done on it, but it was pretty much done and dusted when they were shipping the show around. So uh, yeah. uh, just a matter of time, I think. So obviously the big question is, will it get picked up for a season three if Netflix does really well on it? So uh, obviously yeah. as, as we were behind the Save Prodigy campaign as well. Yeah, we, we absolutely. Had, behind it is in we got behind it, not that we organized no, it. No, no. No, we did not organize it. Everyone should pop it on and have a rewatch and watch season two when it comes on, which I'm sure everyone will. Yeah. My kids watched it with me, and it's the only Trek that they've watched. So it, to me, it's really important to keep watching because I want them to get in a Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Same with our daughter, Hope. She really loved Prodigy. She has seen the odd bit. She really loves Mr. Wolf. We've been watching a few of the Deep Space Nine <laughs> episodes, but she keeps saying, when's Mr. Wolf coming into it? Soon. <laughs> Mr. Wolf. Uh, S.M. Rosenberg writes, I'm glad Rachel is enjoying O'Brien a bit more. I think this episode really did a nice job of showing his ordinary sort of decency. Like, he clearly tries his best to be nice, but he doesn't always have the words and doesn't talk in the most focused group appropriate way. <laughs> and in that way, he feels very real and normal. And Die With Honor has a kind of badass tragic beauty to it as a goodbye. Yeah, that goodbye scene was nice when he sort of suddenly realizes what he's saying and, and what it means. I, yeah. I, that, was, that was a nice little touch, I thought. And that gets us to 278, Q-less. H.P. Loveshaft, hey, uh, writes, Q mentions the Marquis of Queensbury rules, which are a set of vintage 19th century boxing rules from London and the first to mandate gloves over bare knuckles, hence the mustache and the onesie. Luke Slater comes in, the Marquis of Queensbury, of course, known both for codifying the rules of boxing and his homophobic legal persecution of Oscar Wilde. Now, I remember a friend of mine at university joked about starting a bare-knuckle boxing society. Oh, my God. Mind you, he also thought about establishing an apathy society, but in the end, he couldn't be bothered to do either one. Ah, boo! <laughs> boo! who he writes, I still chuckle at Cisco telling O'Brien that he didn't think Vash was Picard's type. I'm bummed Vash didn't return in any other Trek episodes. Yeah, me too. Don't want to say too much, but there's a character in Lower Decks who's inspired by Vash. Mm -hmm. I just wish they'd got Jennifer Hetrick for those episodes. Ah, oh, that would have been cool. 
Kern continues, this is part of the weird pervy Q phase where the writers had him chasing female characters. It got really bad in Voyager. I can see why John Delancey hated that writing choice. Yeah. Although that said, even in TNG, they had him creeping and peeping out the ceiling. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was totally a creeping and peeping. But he, it seemed like he would be creeping on everybody, but it like got more, I don't know, sexual or female-focused. Mm. It seemed like in later episodes, in especially Voyager with him and Janeway. And, yeah, it just felt different for some reason. Yeah. Maybe it's because she was a woman, and, and that's why it did feel different. Mm. Christopher D. Singles writes... Even as a very young man, fully in the zeitgeist of the 90s, when Deep Space Nine came out, I found Bashir's perving creepy and annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think they were going for young and enthusiastic for Bashir. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, somehow it ended up with creepy sex pest instead. <laughs> well, th- thankfully, it gets better. It does. Which I'm it sure does. Rachel will be relieved at. Yeah. And that gets us to 279, Dax. Luke Slater writes, Chris really hits the nail on the head here. This was DS9's first shot at its own measure of a man, examining the nature of its non-human characters. But it's hamstrung by the fact that Dax is not a unique being. Yes. And by interlacing what is essentially a trial for the right to exist with a murder investigation, with a twist that renders the point moot. It feels like it would have been better to have the peril be a classic Star Trek overreaction. Adultery on our world means death! Right. With no question that Curzon had done it, and the focus, therefore, entirely on whether Jadzia Dax can be held accountable for Curzon Dax's crimes. Agreed, Luke. Yes. Luke Slater continues, Early DS9 does have a habit of bringing in outside parties to resolve plots. Perhaps they felt that this character group's expertise lent itself more to networking than technobabble. Mm. On that point, there's still plenty of technobabble in there for that. Yeah. That would also have been the case if they'd had expert testimony from a Trill Symbiosis counsellor, of course, but it would at least have maintained the through line and focused the question on Dax instead of having it happen around her. Yeah, I agree. SM Rosenberg writes, I agree that it was a bit of a cop-out not to actually settle the fundamental question of intergenerational Trill crime or bring in any pre-existing Trill law, but I enjoyed the story and the judge so much that it still rates pretty high for me. And Fanula Flanagan is always fabulous, like she was in her TNG episode. I hope Rachel does eventually go back and watch at least some episodes of later TNG, because, to be honest, I feel like most of my favorites are there. Well, good news for you, because we will be going back to Star Trek Next Generation after this season of Deep Space Nine. Excellent. It's been officially decided, so... (laughs) That's what we're doing. Yeah, and there are some good reps in there, including, as was mentioned in remaining TNG episodes, Fanula's other appearance. Yes, and uh, Relics is the one I'm, I just love that episode so much. And uh, Rachel has no idea that he's, Scotty's coming back, so I think it's going to be exciting. Yeah, it's a nice thing about doing the comment show now with me and you is we can be a bit more spoilery. You don't have to, I know. <laughs> have to worry about that. Fanula Flanagan was an old friend of my Auntie Monica's. What? Not actually my auntie. She was our next-door neighbor growing up. And I was at her brother's 60th or 65th birthday party in Dublin with my family, my late teens. And Fanula was there and she did her traditional James Joyce monologue at the party. Uh, Molly Bloom's soliloquy from Ulysses because she was very into Joyce. She was in a load of Joyce-related theatrical productions, uh, including touring a one-woman show that she wrote, Joyce's Women, in the 70s, which was directed by Burgess Meredith. What? Yeah, Penguin himself. And it was filmed in 1983 with Fanula in all six main female roles. Wow. So you were, in, in your late teens, you would have seen this, right? You would have known her from Star Trek. Uh, not quite. It was, I think it was the year before, 
or oh. the year that she appeared in TNG. And so I didn't oh, know. Otherwise, no. I probably would have you know, fan geeked out. But uh, no. did you did you know when you watched TNG that you're like, wait a minute, I know her. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and of course, wow. she's been in lots of other stuff as well since. So whenever she pops up, I go, hey, it's Vanilla. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I'm starstruck by your story, which says, <laughs> says a lot about me. Ben A writes, I would argue that Deep Space Nine presents by far the most morally gray characters of the Trek shows before Discovery and Strange New Worlds, and most of all Lower Decks. I can't think of any character who doesn't eventually develop significant complexity. Well, maybe Keiko. <laughs> Poor Keiko. As Chris alluded, it will be a couple of seasons before we really see this fully develop. But episodes like Dax, for all its untidiness, give good glimpses towards the series' future and the aspirations of the showrunners and writers. Deep Space Nine will mark some dark turns for the future and honestly make it depart significantly from Roddenberry's vision, but serve to delve deeper into contemporary issues more than any other Trek would for over 20 more years. I sincerely hope you two choose to stick with this experiment to eventually experience far beyond the stars, past tense, and in the pale moonlight among so many more. Some of those are always off, season six and seven, but they are worth, but they are worth the wait. Yeah, absolutely. There's some great stuff to come. And DS9 fans, don't be afraid that the return to TNG means that, that there's never going to be any more DS9 either. Oh no, for sure we're going back to Deep Space Nine. Rachel and I are both absolutely enjoying it. We just watched a duet, and oh my god, such a great episode, and we were both really impressed with it. It's some some of the best track ever. Absolutely. And I agree with Ben A that I think DS9 has a lot in common with current Trek. I think you can see a lot of commonalities. I think if it weren't for DS9, we wouldn't have some of the Trek that we do now. Mm -hmm. And I agree it takes a couple of seasons to really get going. But Chris, as you said before, compared to TNG season one, this is already Shakespearean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Matt writes... I always saw it as a philosophical examination of whether a person should be held responsible for what those before them did. The concept of punishing someone for something their parent or relative did was quite common throughout human history Mm. and is still common practice in some places. Should Jadzia be punished just because some genes or memories were passed down to her from someone who did commit a crime? Of course, as a lot of people have mentioned already, the whole question is undercut because Curzon didn't commit the crime anyway. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about this from the sins of the father angle and i wonder if the episode would have had more weight if it turned out curzon had done it or maybe if anina had done it to be with curzon so there was a level of guilt by association there yeah yeah i think that would have been a much more interesting episode not that maybe he didn't do it because then that might complicate the character or maybe he did it like it was in self-defense and then they covered it up because you don't want curzon to be like a murderer yeah but if she did it or if he was implicated and if he actually did something wrong which i guess sleeping with a guy's wife was wrong it it might have made more sense about why dax wouldn't speak up about it as well because the whole thing he just didn't want to dishonor his friend's memory or yeah or hers if it had been he knew that she'd done it and he kept quiet yeah because he didn't want her to suffer from it then again that might have made a bit more sense yeah yeah but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and these guys were on a schedule. These scripts are getting yeah. turned over week after week, so you got to, you know, cut them a little slack. And that gets us to Passenger, episode 280. I think the most memorable thing about this episode is Alexander Siddig's, how to put it, interesting <laughs> acting choices as the Vantica-possessed Bashir, and that's what a lot of the comments centered around. Yep. Uh, Carter Stepper said, 
Sid is acting while Vantica is truly over the top, but in the best tradition of Shatner, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, Matt writes, I love Alexander Siddig's or Siddig Elfadil, as he's credited in the first season, over-the-top acting. It's what makes him so perfect for the schlocky stuff he's been in, like Reign of Fire and Game of Thrones. If you're going to stand out against CGI dragons, you better act over the top. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And Star Trek has a fine tradition of scenery chewing, oh. as does Deep Space Nine. I think in this episode, Alexander City's just lucky that Avery Brooks hadn't chewed it up already. Yeah, it's true. Luke Slater says, According to behind-the-scenes accounts, Siddig got the script a day in advance of shooting and made a call on the voice that was a choice. <laughs> what we have in the episode, then, is him dubbing in a new performance over whatever the hell he did before to sync with the original lip movements, which is perhaps why the timing of the delivery is so eccentric. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I wonder what the original voice was that he did. I wonder if it was like, ah, what's going on, guys? I'm evil! Well, wonder no more, in a Rachel Watches Star Trek exclusive, we can reveal that after extensive investigation, we found the original recording. Check this out. All right. He's hailing us. I need some time. I'll give you as much as I can. On screen. Hello, my son. Do you want a lolly? <laughs> if I permit you to leave, what guarantee do I have that you return, Dr. Bashir? He's a f***ing liability. <laughs> I'm only interested in the safety of my doctor. Stop f***ing moaning. I'm not f***ing interested. You've gone to great lengths to survive, Vantica. I don't think you're ready to kill yourself. If you don't want to be counting the fingers, you haven't got. I suggest you get those guns. Quick! You must be crazy. I want no part of this. When you dance with the devil, you wait for the soul to stop. Know what I mean? You <laughs> Why did they go with that? It was so much better. That's real. That is the real stuff for sure. Yeah, I can sort of see why they redid it, yeah. but yeah, choices. Yeah. Choices. Uh, 281. Move along home. Alamarine! Alamarine! Martin S9157 writes, It was lucky that the Wadi's first contact was with the Federation. I imagine the Wadi would have received a very different reception if they pulled that stunt with the Cardassians. Ooh. Oh, man, <laughs> yeah, Ducott would have just thrown them straight into a labor camp, no question. <laughs> Get out of here with that Marine stuff, dig up some more. Richard Brass writes, Oh, come on, stop analyzing it, it's great fun. Oh, yeah, analyzing is your raison d'etre. Oh, yeah. But seriously, a few pints as a side dish... Don't think about the tech and marvel at Quark's gobsmacking pleading scene. Please! Please! Yes. And the all-portant one too many. Please! <laughs> An absolute joy. It was. It was. I'm thoroughly on board with that. You know, lots of people commented that this isn't so bad for a bad episode. Yeah. Especially when you compare it to stuff like Code of Honor or oh. the alternative factor. Yeah. I think Rich is right. This is in so bad, it's good territory. It like is. Spock's brain. Just turn your critical brain off and just go along for the ride. Yeah, I agree. Louis Carter writes, Rick Berman liked this episode. Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, this is another can of worms, isn't it? Rick Berman. Um, probably something for a more thorough discussion. Oh, but yeah. for those not familiar, there's a lot of controversy around Rick Berman. I mean, on the one hand... 
taking over TNG from Roddenberry when he started letting go in the reins and then passed away, Berman's undoubtedly... He kept Trek going. Yeah, kept Trek going. We wouldn't yeah. have the Trek today if we didn't have Rick Berman. But, but on the other hand, you know, there's testimony from cast and writers and crew that he was something of a sexist, misogynist, uh, potentially homophobic. Yeah. Um, certainly the, the blame has been laid at his feet for the lack of representation of, of gay characters yeah. in Trek series of this mm-hmm. era. And quite famously, he's been accused of burying the blood and fire TNG script, which was an AIDS allegory. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. It, com- complicated topic, but, uh, but yeah, sick burn. Sick burn. <laughs> and that gets us to the Nagus, 282. David Wetzel writes, on the whole, I dislike the Ferengi. I just keep thinking if the whole Federation is money free, then the Ferengi shouldn't be able to interact with them at all. And if they really are all about selfishness, they give up the lust for gold. It's more profitable to go along with the rest of the quadrant. Hmm. And of course, it's not gold they lust for. It's latinum. Because as we find out in a later episode, in the quite comic bit, gold is completely worthless. (laughs) Because they can replicate gold. That's no big deal. Yeah. But Latinum, they cannot, and that's why it is valuable. It's interesting because I don't understand how the economics of this world works. In Star Trek, I understand that you can probably have some sort of credits and everybody gets some uh, basic needs met. You get a place to live, you get food. But then, like, things I don't understand is why does Picard have a vineyard and somebody else live in an apartment? Could I decide I want to have a vineyard and then I get a vineyard? Or is there... Like a, a line, obviously he inherited it from his father or from his brother. So there's a lot of confusing things that go on with Star Trek that they haven't really completely thought out the economy of how uh, money and resources work exactly. I think part of it is, is, is it like it's the future equivalent of you know, hipsters and artisanal stuff so it's like yeah everyone can have free filter coffee but you have to pay through the nose if you want this artisanal hand ground yeah coffee blend from from miles away but then how do you pay for that is it with your credits and how many credits do you get and there's you know there's still an element even though it's very socialist there still has to be an element of capitalism and i guess it's a spectrum capitalism socialism where you, if somebody who does some amazing work, I'm sure, do they get paid more than somebody that just sits around all day and plays on the holodeck? You know, do, do they get more credits? Can you earn more credits to get more things? Uh, and how does that work? They kind of gloss over all this stuff. And it's totally necessary for Deep Space Nine because, you know, if you could just click your fingers and there's infinite resources, the whole Bajor storyline goes away because it's, you know, this yeah. planet's been stripped of all its resources by the Cardassians. The Federation are coming in to try and help them, but the Federation just go click. Oh, there you go. It's all fixed and fly off. But well, that's a quick series. Yeah, yeah. But the, then the holodeck. There's only so many holodecks, and mm. on the ship, so you have to have an allocated holodeck time. So like, every does everybody get like an hour in the holodeck every week, or does the captain get more time because he's higher rank? How does that work? You know, they don't really explain any of these things um, about work and status and you know who gets. Obviously, the captain's quarters are way better than the lower deckers. So there is some hierarchy of, you know, the higher rank you are, the better stuff you get. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Luke Slater writes, The real giveaway that the Ferengi exists is a satire of modern capitalism rather than a sincere speculation of future capitalism is Latinum, a substance that cannot be replicated, which exists for the sole narrative purpose of being a medium of currency exchange in this post-scarcity universe. There you go. Yep. 
That's right, Luke. And another thing that always makes me wonder about this is how do they interface these post-scarcity economies and the ones that are still working on a capitalist basis? Because you think if those two touch, there's the massive risk that that might collapse the capitalist-based society, hence the need for this thing that you can't replicate because, again, otherwise you could just replicate sackfuls of latinum or gold yeah. or diamonds or whatever, and that collapses the entire economy because that's now completely yeah, devalued exactly. the basis for it. And lastly, we're going to cover uh, the bonus episode, I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee. Brian Leet writes, a fun episode and a delight to share in the holiday. I also think, wait, I can just ask for stuff that I deserve? is a pretty good concept and that some of us can use as a reminder uh, from time to time. Even smart folks. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Harry Kim needs to watch this episode. <laughs> what, you meant I could have just asked for a promotion? No! <laughs> Poor Harry Kim. Poor Harry Kim. Bobby L. writes, Is it supposed to be a sexy adventure, or does Tana like beating people up? The answer to the question is, of course, yes. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. As the meme goes, why don't we have both? There you go. Professor Koshka writes, I also want Tendi and Rutherford to get together, but I don't want it to happen in the show. Maybe they could at the very end of the series finale or something. I really like seeing their relationship as really close friends instead of as romantic partners. Man, yeah. Mm. It's one of those things where the romantic tension makes it interesting, and once they're together, it's less interesting. The old perceived wisdom was once you get the two leads together, that's the end of the show. Yeah. You know? But, you know, there have been shows in more recent years that sort of buck that trend, like Bones and the new Magnum P.I., where they've got the mains together and it still continues successfully. So. Oh, good. What annoys me is when they keep reversing it so they get together and then they're broken up again, then they get together and then they're yes. broken up again. It's like, stop it. That stuff's annoying. <laughs> but it could be that they're, you know, uh, one or both of them's asexual and they're just, that's just not how they are. They're not interested in a sexual relationship with one another, but they can be really close friends or they could even be partners in life and not be sexual. But there is something in the show where they a couple times get in positions that are really sexual and they both seem oblivious to the fact that it's a very, you know, where they get crammed into a thing together. Yeah, both in a Jeffrey's tube. And, yeah. Yes, yeah, and it seems pretty erotic to somebody that thinks that way, myself, uh, and they don't seem to notice that it could be sexual or it's perceived as sexual. So I'm not sure. They might keep them just as friends, but I do kind of think it's hot, I gotta say. And it's not like Lower Deck shies away from that kind of thing. Oh, no. You know, as, as with the sexy, violent adventures of Robin Hood. <laughs> yes, exactly. And lastly, Carter Stepper writes, whoopsie. Uh, wise words. Well, that's all we've got for this. We've kind of run a bit long, but we had a lot of catching up to do. So thank you all for writing comments. I know that since we haven't had the comment show, there's been less participation in the comments. So hopefully uh, Rafe and I will kind of jazz it up a bit and get people more excited about talking on our comments. Absolutely. And hopefully in the next one, we'll catch up to current times with the remaining handful of Deep Space Nine and bring it up to the latest episodes. I hope to read lots more of your great comments then. All right. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Rafe Ball. And you've been listening to Rachel Watches Star Trek. Comments.
watches Star Trek and reads comments. <laughs>